1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18 this evening is the verse that we are focusing on. Again, um, slowing down, focusing very specifically on these verses. The title of the message, Giving of Thanks. In Christian circles, we um, speak often about finding and obeying the will of God. In many contexts, the will of God can be somewhat difficult to discern. Some of our young people are actively seeking to discern the will of God as it pertains to their future. Does God want me to get married? Does God want me to go to college? Does God want me to be vocational? These questions take prayer. They take counsel. They take time to discern. One of the best pieces of advice I can give at any moment in time to anyone that is uh, discerning or seeking to discern the will of God, whether to the young or to the old, regardless of one's place in life, is that if you want to be in the will of God, Spend more time knowing what you do know to do and then allow God to handle the things that you don't know. Spend more time doing what you you know is God's will, the things that are obvious, the daily things that God clearly wants us to do, instead of spending the time wondering or worrying or pursuing those things which we don't fully know. See, many Christians are busy wondering about God's will for them in things which are subjective, but have no interest and place no priority upon those things which are clearly stated in the Word of God to do. The Bible is filled with the revelation of God's will. In fact, this is the revelation of God's will. This is God's Word to mankind. The Bible may not tell us exactly who to marry, but it tells us a great deal about the kind of person we should marry. The Bible may not tell us what to buy, but it's filled with God's will concerning how you ought to approach money and material possessions. And if we take the time and the effort to learn about and to understand and to do what we know the Bible does say to do, then figuring out the rest, all of those subjective elements will not only become much easier, but many of them will take care of themselves. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, the job has been made even easier for us to discern at least one element of God's will. We often spend time as believers carefully determining in the Bible what is precept and what is principle. What is, what is this? Is this a, a direct command of God or is this a principle that we then need to seek to apply in some different and, and meaningful way to our lives in a way that's maybe not explicitly stated in Scripture? What do we need to follow verbatim and what do we need to follow, we might say, in spirit? Every once in a while, however, the Bible simply comes out and tells us something is God's will. And we see that this evening. We've got something that is just definitively stated, this is God's will. And this happens twice in 1 Thessalonians, in fact. The first time was in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, which states this, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. And if you recall, it was a while back now, we specifically spoke on this, that this is, this is black and white, very clear. God's will for us is that we would abstain from fornication. No need for debate, no, need for, no, no room for confusion at all. This is simply God's will. Sanctification through abstaining from fornication. Sexual deviance is deeply and unambiguously contrary to the will of God. And 1 Thessalonians 4.3 makes that very clear. Now, tonight we are indeed going to look at the second command in this epistle that is just outright declared the will of God. Let's look at this verse together. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is the will of God that you would give thanks in everything. Perhaps you say, I get your point, Pastor. But aren't you simplifying it? What does the original Greek say, Pastor? 
Some of us care about that. Well, good question. So let me give you a literal rendition of the Greek. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That's what it says. Uh, It's not ambiguous at all. It's not changed at all. There's no subjectivity at all. There was no difference. I didn't catch a difference. There's none. It's saying what it's saying. God wants you to give thanks in all things. Now, we talk about that. We say that. It's, it's clear. It's obvious. God wants us giving thanks. Easier said than done, though, isn't it? Easier said than done. Pastor, you're just going to lay it out there for us. That's fine. But can you help us out a little bit? How do we do this? See, it's easy enough to give thanks when things are going well, right? When I'm fed and I'm clothed and I'm healthy and my children are happy and healthy and when my wife is being the kind of wife that God wants her to be and so um, and, and I'm being the kind of husband I ought to be and everything's going the way it, it, it ought to go and, and it's easy to give thanks. But what happens when circumstances change? What happens when I have to bury my child? What happens when I become wheelchair-bound? What happens when I lose my livelihood? What happens when I'm audited by the government and they take much of what I have? Do I give thanks then? Should I give thanks then? Now we know the answer to should I give thanks is yes. We, we read that in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Tonight, The object of this sermon is to help us get a yes out of that first question. Will I give thanks? It's to help you understand how to give thanks. And to do this, we're going to jump around in Scripture a little bit. How do we give thanks in everything? And the answer is this. Perspective. How do we give thanks in all things? Perspective. So this evening, we're going to consider perspectives on four different circumstances that would lend themselves to unthankfulness and yet through a proper perspective can instead grow in us a deep thanksgiving unto God. And the four perspectives are these. First, we're going to understand a perspective on loss and that perspective is this. It's all God's anyway. Then we're going to learn a perspective on material lack. And the perspective is this. God cares for you. Then we're going to learn about a perspective on infirmity. And the perspective is this. It keeps me where God wants me. And then finally, we're going to learn a perspective on intangibles. And we'll talk about what I mean by that as we get through the sermon. And the perspective is this. God makes no mistakes. So let's begin. A perspective on th- of thankfulness, a perspective on loss. It's all God's anyway. The poster child for material loss in the Bible is the man Job, is he not? Isn't that just the pinnacle of, of a man who had and lost everything? Job 1.1 tells us that the man Job was a man who was perfect and upright, One who feared God and eschewed, that word literally meaning rejected, evil. This was not a bad man. This was not a man who had it coming to him in the moral sense. This was a man who loved God, feared God, was righteous. As a matter of fact, in the book of Ezekiel, when God is speaking to the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel, God is trying to tell them exactly how wicked they are. He said, if you in Jerusalem had Noah... Daniel and Job with you in the city, I still would destroy the city and only spare their lives. Many times in Scripture we see that a righteous man in a city can in fact intercede and spare the city. But God said, you are so wicked, you are so apostate, that if if all three of those men, Daniel, Job, and Noah, were all here, they would be the only ones to escape with their lives. Job was listed as literally one of the most righteous, upright men who has ever lived on the earth. So we're not talking about a man who deserves to lose things in our perspective, okay? The man was not only godly, but as we 
continue to read, we find out that he was indeed materially very wealthy. Material wealth in Oriental culture, uh, somewhat still today, but certainly um, back in, in latter times, was gauged almost entirely by possessions. People were, were oftentimes nomadic. They didn't want to carry a bunch of heavy gold or such around with them. They would to some degree, but possessions were the big thing. And as the scriptures describe Job's wealth, it describes it this way, that he had 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 she-asses. Now, even by today's standard of ranches, that would be a lot. I mean, that would be big. That would be substantial. The scriptures also tell us that his household was very large. Many, many servants. And they weren't just many. They were happy. They were happy servants. Job was not an angry man. He was not an evil man. He was not a hard taskmaster. He was a kind man. He was a godly man. He was also blessed in his family. He had seven sons. He had three daughters, all having good relationships one with another and with him. It was a close family and by all accounts, a happy family. So the man was happy. The man was healthy. The man was wealthy. He had family. He had health. He had everything that this world could offer. The scriptures tell us he was one of the greatest men of the East. He was well respected. He was well loved. You are indeed perhaps familiar with what happens next. Satan comes before the throne of God one day and God says, where have you been, Satan? And he says, oh, you know me. I was walking to and fro throughout the earth, walking up and down it. The idea being that which is spoken of in 1 Peter, that Satan is walking about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan says, I was just walking around seeing who I could destroy today, seeing who I could enslave to sin, seeing whose life I could uh, devour in sin. And God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? There's no man like him, righteous in all his generation. Satan says, well, here's the problem, God. You've put your hand of protection upon him. But here's the thing, Satan says. I contend that the only reason why Job serves you, the only reason why he's a righteous man is because you protect him and bless him. You take away all of those goods. You take away his stuff. You take away his family. You take away those things and I bet he will curse you to your face. God says you're on. We pick up the story in Job 1, verses 13 through 19. Scriptures tell us this. There was a day when Job, his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. That would have been lightning, by the way. That caught a fire and destroyed the cattle. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. We get the picture, right? Not just in one day, but in a matter of minutes. While one was yet talking, the next one came. And in a matter of minutes... Job lost everything that he had physically on this earth. He went from wealthy to poor. He went from happy father to a bereaved father. He went from a man of respect and influence to a man of sympathy. He lost everything, complete physical and material destitution. Now, eventually he'll lose his health as well. That's in the next chapter. We're not going to get there this evening. If I were Job, I try to put myself in his shoes. I cannot help but think that I would have been completely broken. It's hard enough for me when one of my little girls just gets sick. 
I, I struggle with my children not being healthy. It's a, it's a difficult thing for me to deal with. Satan went all in in his attempt to destroy, destroy Job's faith. But look at how Job responds in verses 20 to 22. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and that was his mourning and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. In the midst of great suffering and loss, the Scriptures tell us that Job responded with worship, with extolling the worth of his God above himself, an abject humbling of himself before God. He blessed the name of God, justifying God's goodness, declaring that it was God's right to take away everything he had because God is the one who had given it to him in the first place. Without God, he had nothing. Therefore, God is still good in the midst of him having nothing again. He came into this world with nothing. He will leave with nothing. And it is certainly God's prerogative to take away what God had given to him in between. Job understood something that we all need to learn. That everything we have is indeed God's anyway. And whether he chooses to give or whether he chooses to take away, God has every right to do as he pleases. It does not make him a bad God or a mean God or a vindictive God or an unfair God to take away that which he had freely given. What does such a perspective do for us? It grants us the capacity to view circumstances apart from the character of God. Instead of imposing our circumstances upon God's character. In other words, saying, I see God is good because of the circumstances that are around me. I see God is good because of what I experience. We are able to detach our circumstances and experiences from the character of God. We don't need to impose physical blessings or physical suffering upon our understanding of who God is. Much rather, we can rest in God's character in spite of circumstances and emotions. And this affords us the opportunity to have a consistent view of God. It enables us to maintain a spirit of thankfulness, of thanksgiving, regardless of the physical circumstances, regardless of the emotional or material circumstances, because we see God not as dependent. The way we see God is not dependent upon the circumstances that we're going through. When Job was rich... He blessed God for His goodness in giving Him plenty. When Job became poor, he blessed God for His righteous decision to take back that which He had graciously given to begin with. Either way, Job was able to retain a righteous heart, a thankful heart before God, because Job had a perspective. And his perspective is that everything he has is God's anyway. So when we ask this question... How can I give thanks in everything? The first perspective that will help us do this is having a perspective on what it is to lose that which we have. That all I have is God's. That God gave you that car. That God gave you your house. That God has given you your health. That God has given you your children, and that God has every ability to sustain that which He's given you. And so if you lose that which He's given you of no fault of your own, not because of mismanagement or sin or poor choices, but simply by the virtue of, of losing it, that God is just as just in taking it away as He was just in giving it to you. That God is just as good in removing from you that which He's given as He was good in giving it to you to begin with. That was Job's perspective. And Job teaches us something very important about how we can give thanks even in the midst of trying and difficult circumstances and situations because it's all God's anyway. And if we get this perspective correct, then material loss doesn't damage our capacity to thank God in circumstances. 
So first, perspective, a perspective on loss, that it's all God's anyway. Second perspective, a perspective on material lack. A perspective on material lack. So we talk about having and losing. What, <coughs> what about never having to begin with? None of us in this room are particularly wealthy. And perhaps uh, some people, um, particularly this tends to happen around those teenage years. I've known some young people um, where they've grown up in, in a family that hasn't had a whole lot. The Lord has always provided for their needs, as God has promised to do. But they've never had a lot. And, and they grew up to be a little bit resentful of never having had a lot in their lives. And, and, and this is something that can happen where, where because we've never had what they have, because we've never um, had the money or the, the things that other people have had, uh, it can dig into our capacity to be thankful. How do I maintain a thankfulness to God when I don't have the things that I could want? or the things that other people have. The scriptural perspective that informs our ability to be thankful in the midst of material lack is an understanding that God's promise to His followers is that He will provide for our every need. The idea is this. If God knows what I want, and God knows what I need, and it is not beyond God to give me anything that I want or anything that I need, then if I don't have something, it's because God hasn't given it to me. Okay? If, it is, if God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, if God does not need money, if God could have a Ferrari sitting in front of your house tomorrow morning, which He could then the reason why you don't have that is because God has not seen fit to give it to you. That's the perspective on material lack. And we learn of this, at least in one place, from Jesus' own teachings in Matthew chapter 6. This is the, the heart of what we would typically call the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says this, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, or nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on, is not the life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of these thing, all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. God is not only willing to provide, but He has promised that as His child, He will give you what you need if you will trust Him to do so. Now, let me be clear about what Jesus is saying and what He is not. Jesus is not saying that you can do what you want with your own money and God is obligated to provide for your needs. That if you go out and you blow your money on wants, that then God will somehow feel obligated to give you more money to provide for your needs. The money that you just blew on what you wanted was the money that God had provided for your needs. All right, so, so, so just because God provides for us doesn't mean we can't blow it. We can't, we can't take what God had provided and, and destroy it or, or ruin it or, or misappropriate it. If you take the money that God has provided for your needs and you, you blow it on things you don't need, God is not obligated to give you more money. So a, material, a, a Christian can lack. But rest assured, if he does lack, it's not because... God failed. It's because that Christian has something somewhere 
that, that, that Christian either misappropriated what God had provided or just plain missed what God had provided. And Jesus, as he talks about this, uh, he, he gives verses 25 through 34 of Matthew 6 based upon a premise that he had already given. And let me now remind you of that premise back in verses 19 through 21 of Matthew 6. Jesus said this, Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We talked about these verses this morning. Jesus gave the promise of God's provision in verses 25 and following through 33 within the context of his followers rejecting the lust of this world as it pertains to stuff. A mindset of materialism, devoting our time and our money and our efforts to amassing physical things upon this earth for the sake of our own temporal pleasure. Jesus says, don't do that. If you have a mindset of materialism, then you've already lost out on the privilege of being thankful for everything because thankfulness implies contentment and contentment means that you are satisfied with that which you have. And a mindset of materialism means you're not satisfied with that which you have. You're always looking for something else. You always want more. And uh, I can tell you that regardless of what you get, it's never satisfying on this earth. Regardless of what you buy, there's always something better out there. It, there. There's always something new. There's always something more. There, there, there is no satisfaction to the one that's craving satisfaction in things. Very temporary. And so we don't pursue things. Now, that doesn't mean things are wrong, right? It, things are not sinful. But the love of amassing things, seeking things for the sake of contentment, uh, temporary though it may be, that is lust. Perhaps covetousness, depending on the context. But when we assume the perspective that God loves you, that God cares for you, that God will provide for your needs, the immediate result of this persuasion is contentment. And contentment fosters thankfulness. So you don't have and you want and you pray and you're content and then God provides. You could go and you could pursue that which you want, even, even things that are not necessary. It'd be nice to have a new TV. It'd be nice to have that new boat. It'd be nice to have this. It'd be nice to have that. Things that you could want. It's not wrong to want. It's wrong to lust. It's not wrong to want, it's wrong to covet. It's wrong to be discontent with what you have. Thinking that somehow you ought to have something that you don't. That's where things become dangerous. Because where there is discontentment, there is a lack of, faith, of, of thankfulness to God. But if we remember that God cares for us, which means even in those those extra things. You know, he's provided your food, he's provided your clothing, you have a house. And then you say, well, God, I'd also like this. Even in those things, if God is willing, you can trust that if you don't have it, it's because God doesn't want you to have it. It's because God has not yet provided for it. Now, obviously, there's a balance to be had in this perspective. And that balance must be led by the Holy Spirit of God. If I have $10 million in the bank and I'm wondering why God hasn't miraculously given me a house, I might be a little bit confused as to how God provides. There's an element of subjectivity here. If, if, if there's $10 million in the bank and I say, God, why haven't you placed a house in my lap? Well, well maybe it's because uh, he, he gave you the, the money so you can go buy a house. Uh, he may not give you one because you can go get one for yourself with what he has given you. There's an element of subjectivity, similar to what we spoke about last Sunday concerning God speaking to us. God always provides. Sometimes he uses money to provide. The question is not, am I spending money on things I want, but rather am I spending money on the things God wants me to have or the things that I need?
We're not called to be uh, ascetics in this life. We're not called to reject all material possessions, denying ourselves any pleasures, denying ourselves any comforts, denying ourselves any conveniences. But when our heart is turned away from God and turns toward these pleasures, when these pleasures are, are pursued in seeking some sort of fulfillment or some sort of contentment outside of God, our desire has drawn us toward those things at the expense of God and our desire toward God. And we've gone beyond God's provision and are now sitting in a place of discontentment, perhaps lust, perhaps covetousness for that which we do not have. But if we can foster a biblical perspective on God's care for you that reminds you that if God wants you to have it, then you will. And if you need it and you're following the Lord, He will provide it. Then we don't have to worry then we don't have to worry about will we get that or won't we get that? Will we have enough money or won't we have enough money? If God wants you to have it, He'll provide. If you need it to live, God will provide it if you'll trust Him. On the authority of the Scriptures, Jesus Christ Himself said that. Take no thought for these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We can maintain thankfulness in everything when we have this perspective, even in the midst of material lack, because we know whatever we don't have, we don't have because God has seen fit not to give it to us. Third perspective that can help us obey, a perspective on infirmity. A perspective on infirmity. So we've seen two perspectives already. We've seen that perspective on material loss. We've seen the perspective on material Lack. Material loss, it was all God's anyway. Material lack, God cares for me. What about a perspective on infirmity? The word infirmity literally means weakness. I use this word because it's not just about that which is physical. It it can go to that which is emotional or spiritual as well. Infirmity can speak of things such as physical weaknesses or illnesses, but it can also speak of spiritual struggles or emotional weaknesses as well. You know, weakness is a part of humanity, isn't it? As a human, we all have weaknesses. It's a part of what we are. The, the, the term um, that is often used is the idea that we have feet of clay, Right? That, that we, we, no, none of us is perfect. Since the day that Adam fell to sin, every man has been fle- plagued with infirmities of the flesh, of the spirit, and of the mind. And the temptation when we come across these things, particularly if it is indeed something that was not of our doing, is to blame God, to wonder if God is in control, or to question whether or not God is really in control. Why would God do that? Why would God allow that? Why am I tempted with this sin? Why am I the one with that health problem? And we think of a a young man like Keegan in our assembly who was born with disabilities. And certainly it wasn't his choice. It wasn't anything that his parents had done. And so we say, why? Why? Can we be thankful in the midst of such things? Can we be thankful with our own personal struggles? How are we thankful when we find out that we have that health problem or when we struggle with this sin and we say, God, why why did you make me this way? Why do I have this weakness, this infirmity? Our example in this context, scripturally, is the Apostle Paul who himself suffered from what he called a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what this thorn in the flesh was that he struggled with. Most believe it was something physical. As a matter of fact, uh, probably something with his eyes. We know that he had eye trouble, particularly later on in his ministry. Um, As he spoke to um, the churches, he he would speak toward the idea that um, he might have had some disfigurement uh, it may have been a result of his stoning several times. Uh, he, he'd been stoned and left for dead out of uh, Lystra and Derby. And if, if they thought he was dead, 
so much so that they literally just threw him out of the city and left him for dead. Um, he may have had a few scars. Uh, he may have had one brick too many hit his head and it may have affected his vision. Um, we don't know. But many people believe it was physical. Some believe it was spiritual. Some believe that Paul was plagued with perhaps a, a besetting sin or a propensity toward a certain sin that he contended with, that he deeply wanted gone, but it, it wouldn't, he, he, he struggled with it. We're, we're not quite sure. I lean toward the physical, but, um, but we really can't know either way. Whatever the case, notice what Paul says about his infirmity that he lived with in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 6 through 10. He said this, For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. Paul was saying that he had every right to be proud. He had every right to glory in his own accomplishments. And he said, But though I would desire to glory, though, though my flesh would desire me to glory in all that I've accomplished for God, right? He says, I will not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth me, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, lest I should be exalted because of how God has spoken through me. God has chosen to use me, and lest I get worked up in pride over the fact that God has made me a chosen vessel. He says, there was given unto me a thorn in the flesh. It was given. Do you notice that? There was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. He says, For this cause I besought the Lord thrice, three times, that it might depart from me. I begged God three times that He would remove this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan. And He, that's God, said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, Paul says, therefore, I will rather glory in my infirmities, my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Far better for me to have these weaknesses, but have the power of Christ upon me, than to have power over these weaknesses in my life, but to lose God's power. Far better for me to realize, for God to keep me in my place through infirmity than for me to start to think that I'm something special and to lose the power of God in my ministry. Therefore, Paul says, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul had a thorn in the flesh which he called a messenger of Satan. He saw it as something sent by Satan to hurt him. And whatever it was, Paul didn't see it as, uh, as specifically being from God, but definitely saw it as being allowed by God. He asked God on three occasions to take it from him. But he says that this thorn in the flesh worked in him a perspective that though Paul would desire to glory in his own abilities and accomplishments that he's done for Christ, God has allowed this messenger of Satan to buffet him, to plague him, to trouble him so that every time he was tempted to pat himself on the back, this messenger of Satan, this thorn in the flesh, would remind him that only by God's grace had any of it been able to be accomplished. That it had nothing to do with him and it had everything to do with God. So Paul says he learned to glory in his weaknesses. To be thankful even for those. To be thankful even in the midst of his weaknesses. Knowing that God allowed them into his life so that through them, God was protecting him. Can you believe that? This thorn in the flesh was the divine protection that God knew Paul needed to protect him from his own pride. Isn't God good? God knows what we need. And what He gives us is not always what we want. Not always what we think we need. Not always what we would perceive is best for us physically or best for us materially but most certainly what God gives us is best for us spiritually. A perspective on infirmity, and that's this. God knows what is best for me. God knows what is best 
for me. If you and I can rest in the fact that God knows what is best for me, that God is the one that's allowing these infirmities, God has a definitive purpose in doing so. Your weaknesses, be they spiritual, emotional, or physical, God has allowed them in your life. And God has a purpose. Then we find the capacity to be thankful even in the midst of those things which we would say are not ideal from a physical material perspective. Perhaps my illness is a chance for me to draw nearer to God. Perhaps my struggle with that sin is, a, is an opportunity for God to teach me how to walk in the Spirit rather than to seek to please Him in the flesh. Perhaps my response to injury is a chance for my unsaved family and friends to see the testimony of God's people in the midst of trouble. Perhaps that's why God allowed me to lose that which I had, to be a testimony to others. We don't always know why God does what He does. We may never know in this life why God did what He did. But the testimony of Scripture is that if we will cultivate a perspective on infirmity, on weakness, that believes that when the Bible says God knows what is best for me, it's true, then we can cultivate a perspective of thankfulness in the midst of any trial, in the midst of any struggle, in the midst of any weakness. One more perspective this evening. And I call this a perspective on intangibles, a perspective on intangibles. And the, the perspective is this, that God makes no mistakes. A deep source of discontentment among people, and especially we find among young people, is what we would call the intangibles of our lives. Things that are the way they are, the way we're made. It's not necessarily, say, a handicap, though it could be. It's not necessarily um, what we have or don't have, but the intangibles of our lives. These may overlap, as I mentioned, with infirmity some, but can go well beyond them. For young ladies, this can often revolve, particularly in our society, around looks. Why am I not skinny like her? Why don't I have the perfect skin like her? Why isn't my hair color like hers? Why do I just have these boring brown eyes? Why are my feet so big? All sorts of intangibles, right? Things that, I mean, you are the way you are. It's not, it's not an infirmity. Now, infirmities can be a part, like I said, but it's not an infirmity. It's not a weakness. It's just something that maybe culturally um, isn't uh, being pushed or, or, or maybe is not um, uh, culturally or, or societally beautiful. For young men... Uh, it can be many of those same things uh, in a manner of speaking. It can revolve around looks. And for young ladies as well, these things can also revolve around capabilities, right? Uh, maybe it's not I, I can't walk or I can't run, but, but maybe it's I'm not, I'm not that good at, at that sport. Or um, I'm not as good at, at that vocation or that skill. Or why, you know, why, why can't I be a better student? Why am I not smart like that person? Why am I not a good mechanic like that person? Why aren't I athletic like that person? Why, why can't I have that person's memory? Uh, and, and we compare ourselves among ourselves and these, these intangibles in our lives uh, can be a real struggle for us. Now, of course... I don't speak here of things that can change. You say, why, why don't I get good grades but you never study? Well, I can tell you why you don't get good grades. Because you don't study. Right? Uh, why, why am I not good at that sport? Well, have you ever practiced? No? Well, then that's why you're not good at that sport. Right? But we're not talking about those things. The intangibles are things that, that, that cannot change. Regardless of whether you, know, you, you practice all day uh, a five-foot-nothing guy can't become the kind of a basketball player that the, the, the six-foot-five guy can. Now, he, he might have certain skill sets that are just fantastic, but, but there are going to be limitations that he just can't get over because he's, he's short. The, you, know, you can't bring out what the good Lord didn't put in idea. 
uh, is what we're talking about. The intangibles, the unchangeables. Unchangeables in our lives. Practice and hard work can get a person far, but there's still some people that are more naturally gifted. And you just look and you say, wow, I spent all of those years studying and learning and trying and that guy, he just, he just has it. It's just natural to him. And that can be very frustrating, can't it? Physical features can be altered, but there's still people that are just naturally beautiful and people that aren't as naturally beautiful. And focusing upon our failings in this area of intangibles can be a very, very big hindrance to our capacity to be thankful for everything. Are you truly thankful for how God made you? For, for the things God put in, for the things that He didn't? For the things God gave you, for the things that He didn't? The, the intangibles, the unchangeables, the things that you can't change. It's just the way you are. Or are you constantly questioning God in this area? God, why didn't you make me this, that? Why aren't I a better this or that? And as we consider this topic, I reference you to Psalm 139. It's a Psalm of David. And he said this, verses 1 through 14. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. For thou, or thou compassest my paths and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and front and behind and laid Thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, he says. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit and whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee, for thou hast possessed my reins, for um, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. And he says, here it is, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Do you see what David does here? He considers the reality that God has created everything, and that if we were to continue through the psalm, what we would see is that David continues by saying, literally, he has been formed in his mother's womb. God knows you. God knows who you are. He knows what you can do. He knows what you can't do. He knows what you look like. He knows what you don't look like. God knew all of this before you were born, and in fact, God made you that way. He made you that way knowing and loving, loving you. And He's a knowing and all-loving God that made you the way He made you. Your height was not an accident. Your hair and eye color are not an accident. God gave you the talents and the abilities that He wanted you to have. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are not a mistake. Who you are not and who you are is not a mistake. What you are and what you are not is not a mistake. What you look like and what you don't look like is not a mistake. And regardless of whether or not the way you are is the way you would have chosen yourself to be if you could have chosen, an understanding of the character of God and Him and how He created us and formed us lends us to the inescapable conclusion that God has made you how He wanted you. Because if God had wanted something different, He could have done it. He wanted you the way you are so that you could best serve Him in whatever capacity He has chosen for you. He made you to serve Him. And He made you look the way you did or not look the way you don't or have the gifts you have or not have the gifts you don't so that you can serve Him best. So to want to change who you are or what you are is to tell God that He made a mistake and to reject the perfect 
way that God had chosen to make you. But if we can cultivate a perspective on the unchangeables, the intangibles, that reminds us indeed that God has made us the way he chose to make us and be determined that we will take that which he has given to us and make the very most of it for his glory. Then in the midst of all of our imperfections, unchangeables and intangibles, we can genuinely still give thanks for all things, knowing that even if it's not what we would have chosen, it is indeed what what is best in God's eyes. The intangibles in this life. Four perspectives on thankfulness this evening. A perspective on loss, that it's all God's anyways. A perspective on material lack, that God cares for me. Uh, Matt, could you go one more slide? I, I think I duplicated a slide there. A perspective on infirmity, that it keeps me where God wants me. And a perspective on the intangibles, that God makes no mistakes. Four perspectives on four areas of life that can draw us into God's will for us. That in everything we would give thanks. For indeed, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 tells us that this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So my question this evening is, how are you doing at thankfulness in all things? Is there one of these? Maybe several of these areas of your life where... Uh, you've allowed something to creep in that has stripped you of your thankfulness to God in all things? Has the Holy Spirit placed His thumb on something this evening? An incomplete or unbiblical perspective on some area of your life? Do you need to spend some time in God's Word or in prayer changing your perspective on something that you've seen or considered in this life? changing some perspective so that you can be better at reflecting thankfulness. The, the neat thing about this passage is you know God's will. You don't have to take the time wondering, what is God's will for me here? You just have to take the time to, to figure out if you're doing it. And that's the question. Will you renew your mind as necessary in order to line yourself with God's revealed will. Let's pray.